All right. Well, it is good to be with you guys once again. I must admit, uh, I've never quite prepared a sermon on this type of shot clock, um, but it is exhilarating nonetheless, and uh, it's always an honor uh, just to, to visit and um, open God's Word together and uh, just consider what it says and how it impacts our lives. So I'll read it. I'll read the passage. The, the show is going on. We will still be in Revelation 2. I'm not just kind of pulling a uh, one-off. We are going to continue with Thyatira today, uh, and then uh, we'll pray, and then we'll get going, all right? Okay. Let's read our passage first. This is uh, Revelation 2, verses 18 through 29, if you want to turn there. Revelation 2, verses 18 through 29. And to the angel of the church in Thyatira write, The words of the Son of God, who has eyes like a flame of fire, and whose feet are like burnished bronze. I know your works, your love, and faith, and service, and patient endurance, and that your latter works exceed the first. But I have this against you, that you tolerate that woman Jezebel, who calls herself a prophetess, and is teaching and seducing my servants to practice sexual immorality, and to eat food sacrificed to idols." I gave her time to repent, but she refuses to repent of her sexual immorality. Behold, I will throw her onto a sickbed, and those who commit adultery with her I will throw into great tribulation, unless they repent of her works. And I will strike her children dead, and all the churches will know that I am he who searches mind and heart, and I will give each to you according to your works. But to the rest of you in Thyatira who do not hold to this teaching, who have not learned what some call the deep things of Satan. To you, I say, I do not lay on you any other burden. Only hold fast to what you have until I come. The one who conquers and the one who keeps my works until the end, to him I will give authority over the nations, and he will rule them with a rod of iron. As when earthen pots are broken in pieces, even as I myself have received authority from my Father, and I will give him the morning star, I will give him the morning star, He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. Let's pray. Lord, we're just grateful for your word. We're grateful for another Sunday in these trying times. Um, God, we're grateful for the opportunity to gather together. We suddenly don't take that for granted. Uh, God, we just pray uh, in this moment, uh, in this hour, that, that we would just be changed in some way. As we come to this worship service, Lord, with open hands, asking to meet you in some way. Um, As we are weary, as we are working, as we are burdened, uh, God, we just pray uh, that you, the Prince of Peace, would um, relieve us of our various sins and suffering, um, Lord, and that we would just know you a little bit more, a little bit better um, as we consider this passage. We lift all this up to you. It's in your name we pray. Amen. So for those of you uh, who are somewhat familiar with me, uh, and for those of you who aren't, uh, I am from Chicago. I reign from the Midwest. It runs deep in my blood. And as a Midwesterner, and specifically a Chicagoan, I am a Chicago sports fan through and through. So that would be the Bears, uh, who are terrible. Uh, That would be the Blackhawks. That would be the Bulls. We had a good run in the 90s, but nothing since. And, uh, and specifically, that would be the Cubs. Now, uh, I'm, I'm almost 30 now, so it's not like I've been alive through the, the failure of the century prior to 2016. But leading up to the World Series in 2016, as a lifelong Cubs fan, I endured a lot of pain. 
I remember as a sixth grader, if you remember um, in 2003, the, the Steve Bartman ball, if you're familiar uh, with that foul ball and Moises Alou went down the sideline and the fan interfered and squandered uh, our hopes and dreams for a World Series. I remember as a sixth grader breaking down and crying upon that moment. Um, my fandom runs deep, probably too deep. Uh, we can address maybe that problem later. Um, but if you're generally aware of baseball, you'll know that in 2016, all my fortunes changed and the greatest moment of my sports fandom came in 2016, and I don't think it'll be topped. It wasn't an easy road, though. If, if you kind of remember that year, specifically that World Series, the Cubs went down 3-1 to the Indians, was not looking great. But then little by little, they chipped away, and they forced a Game 7. And then in Game 7, they went up 8-6. It was the eighth inning, and I was feeling really good about myself. It was like 11.30, because Eastern time, all the games start so late. It's terrible. Um, I was feeling really good about myself until a Aroldis Chapman threw a fastball to the... Uh, inside of the plate to Rajay Davis, who promptly turned on it and hit a two-run home run over the fence in left field. Now, I was despondent, right? So this was, what, four years ago? So, I mean, adult at this point. Like, the, the level to which my emotions tanked is unhealthy. Uh, my wife can tell you that I was wearing a hoodie with my hood up, with my hands inside the hoodie over my eyes, uh, not believing that the Cubs were this close to breaking the curse and they were going to blow it. I was emotionally spiraling, right? My world was spinning. Now, in that moment, if someone from an hour and a half in the future could have come back and told me, hey, it's going to be okay. Ben Zobrist is going to hit a double down the left field line and uh, you're going to score Albert Almora and go up one run and it's going to hold and you guys are going to win in the 10th. Like, it's going to be okay. If someone were to tell me that truth, it would have radically redefined that moment of despondency, right? So the, the truth of something, in this sense, it changes and it redirects the way we feel in the moment. So in this sense, knowledge and duty, um, you could say uh, doctrine and duty, truth and duty, faith and works, they're inextricably linked, Okay, the knowledge of something and sort of our experience and works and acts in the world are inextricably linked. And in many ways, that's what's going on in our passage with the church of Thyatira. Though outer actions seem acceptable, we saw that in verse 19, we'll revisit it. The church of Thyatira has forfeited the foundational truth. I referenced it before. This is what James would refer to as the relationship between faith and works. Doctrine in this sense, is essential to duty. The two are inseparable. Doctrine and duty. I want to examine this in three ways. First, I want to uh, consider the deficiency of the Thyatiran church. In other words, what's wrong? What are they lacking? What equation doesn't make sense here? Secondly, I want to consider the devotion of the Thyatiran church. So if, if something's wrong, then how is that playing out? In what practical ways is that play out? And then lastly, uh, I want to consider the, the deliverance from that uh, devotion and that deficiency. We'll see that we have many similarities with the Thyatiran church, and like their solution, our solution will also be the love and grace of Jesus Christ. So uh, let's get right into it. Uh, number one, deficiency. We, we see this in verses 20, 23, and 24. There is a, there, there's a cognitive problem. There is a, a problem with the Thyatiran church in their understanding 
of the world and specifically their understanding of worship. Let's look in, in verse 20. It says, but this I have against you, that you tolerate the woman Jezebel who calls herself a prophetess and is teaching, right? There's a didactic nature. There's an information transfer where they're going to the wrong source of information. They're going to the prophetess instead of the one true source. Let's look in verse 23. And I will strike down her children and all the churches will know, again, that cognitive aspect. The churches will know that I am he who searches mind and heart. Uh, lastly, maybe in verse 24, but to the rest of you in Thyatira who do not hold this teaching. So we see now there's this juxtaposition between these two teachings. Um, there's understanding in one sense and understanding in another sense. And the deficiency here is that the, the Thyatiran church is going to the wrong source. They're, they're deriving their de devotion from the wrong source. Maybe just as an unrelated sidebar, if I could for a minute, I, I think verse 19 is really interesting because as a rebuke is being issued to the Thyatiran church. It starts with a commendation, right? So in verse 19, it says, I know your works, your love and faith and service and patient endurance, that your latter works exceed the first. And I think, again, just as a sidebar, it's worth understanding that people are complex. We want to easily understand the world in black and white. We want to categorize people in this group or that group. And whatever sort of arena it is, politics or economics or whatever, we love our name calling, right? Because it's easier for us to understand that people belong to this group and so then we can apply all of their beliefs that they have to have because they're on this group. But the reality is people are more complex than that. The church is more complex than that. You may love someone in a conversation you have, and then you go home and you're scrolling and you see what they post on Facebook, and you're like, whoa, that's a little different than I thought this guy was, right? Um, the reality is that we need to let the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ um, mediate our relationships and, sa and saturate the way we interact with one another and afford one another the grace for the complexity that we all have. But ultimately, the problem with the church of Thyatira is that there is a deficiency in their doctrine. They are they're, they're tolerating and endorsing immorality and idolatry. And I want us just to consider um, what, what I call slow drip tolerance, right? So when we consider our sin, we consider the, the ways we interact with one another and the ways that we fall short, we love horizontalizing our sin, what I mean by that is, is we know that this is wrong and we know that we probably shouldn't gossip and we know that we probably shouldn't do this, but we, we always immediately go, well, at least I'm not doing that, right? We, we, we view it horizontally. Whereas, again, verse 19, the words of the Son of God, who has eyes like a flame of, fr of fire and feet that are burnished bronze, right? That's not horizontal, that's vertical. That means he is the one that's searching minds and hearts not, not your neighbor next to you who you think is, is worse off than you, right? So this slow drip tolerance, what do we give ourselves excuses for and what do we cut ourselves slack on? Because the more that we give ourselves an, an excuse and slack on that thing, it's just going to drip and drip and drip and drip. And over the days and weeks and months and years, it might lead us to commit something, a sin far more egregious than we would have years prior or months prior, but the reality is, is, is we've just let that build up and calcify in our hearts. And that's, again, the issue in Thyatira. They are tolerating and endorsing this type of immorality. And even worse, it's spreading. 
It's proliferating. In verse 23, we see that it's sort of bearing fruit in sort of this this filial way, a, a child's type way, where it's, it's going down through the generations. And so here, here's what that means. If Even if any given individual, Christian, or church, or just secular individual, if they look good on the outside, it is in great peril if it is not motivated by proper doctrine. It is ultimately deficient, right? This is what we see in the Gospels with the Pharisees. Jesus says, you fools, why do you wash the outside of the cup and not the inside? It's the inside that matters. It's that that same idea. So maybe you respond and say, okay, Eric, excellent. Let's just double down our doctrine and belief and make sure we believe all the right things, and I'm sure good works will eventually come. Well, not so fast, right? You guys have been considering the seven churches in Revelation. And at the beginning of chapter two, I'm sure you looked at Ephesus. And, and, and John is, is deliberately juxtaposing Ephesus and Thyatira. Okay, so Thyatira is strong in love and works, but weak in doctrine and discernment. Conversely, Ephesus is strong in doctrine and discernment, but weak in love and works. And so naturally then, the question for us today is how is a church strong in discernment and doctrine, but also strong in love and works? How do we get that fusion? And the next answer lies in examining devotion, which is our next point. So devotion, where was the Thyatiran devotion placed or located and how was it playing out in real life? Contextually, uh, it might help to understand the geopolitical situation of Thyatira. Okay, Thyatira, the city, was politically and culturally marginalized. In many ways, then, it sought prominence economically through means of commerce and trade. And so it was, uh, it was saturated with craftsmen and merchants who would deal and trade and sell various textiles and metals and things like that. And so they had these <clears throat> sort of trade guilds. Uh, the, the Greek word is, is where we get our word syndicate from, sort of like a crime syndicate, like a, an organization that's surrounded in like one specific thing. And so what would happen then is for each one of these trade guilds or these syndicates, there would be a patron deity or a patron god that would represent that trade guild. And so they would all worship to that god for success in their specific trade. And the issue is that many Christians of the Thyatiran church would then therefore be tempted to worship that same god. And so this is the idolatry um, that, that the book of Revelation, specifically in chapter 2, is intent on pulling out. It's, it's interesting, too, that in verse 23, we see uh, Jezebel mentioned. This should be a familiar name to you if, if you're familiar with your Old Testament. We see Jezebel in 1 Kings. Some debate on who this is referring to, but in light of the background of Thyatira, I think it's pretty consistent that John is, is bringing up this story of 1 Kings, Elijah and the prophets of Baal, uh, as a deliberate way to compare and contrast ways which the the, the idolatrous guilds of Thyatira compare with what we saw in 1 Kings. So if you remember 1 Kings 18, I'm not going to turn there. I'll just summarize it for you really quick. Um, you have Elijah and the prophets of Baal, and they have this competition on Mount Carmel to see who is the one true God. And it's interesting contextually to figure out what a Baal is. When we read the Old Testament at first glance, we probably assume Baal is something like what we see in Greek mythology, like a Greek god, like Zeus. 
But the reality is in the ancient Near East, Baal was not as concrete. Baal was more of a representative for various gods of different facets or aspects of life. So there was a, um, there's a Baal for agriculture, right? A Baal for the harvest. There's a Baal for war. There was a Baal for weather, rain and storm, right? So there's a storm god in agriculture, and they all referred to it as Baal. And so in that sense, there was a Baal for everything in many ways. Similarly to the church of Thyatira, you have an idol for each one of these various trade guilds. And so we, we sort of see this idea of idolatry crossing over both of those passages. And, and if we just stop and consider, um, <clears throat> our culture is, is really no different. Sure, the Baals exhibit in different ways, not necessarily in a competition on Mount Carmel, but uh, if you scroll through your phone, uh, specifically maybe on the Explore page, you'll see some Baals there. Uh, if you drive down the highway and look at billboards, you'll see some more there. If you watch TV, any commercials that are trying to get your money or attention or allegiance, you'll definitely find some bales there. Uh, if you go through your uh, credit card statement, you're going to see some bales there. Um, there's lots of different ways our hearts are allured uh, in devotion to worship gods other than the one true God, whether that's in 21st century culture, whether that's in 1 Kings 18, or whether that's in the church of Thyatira in Revelation 2. Maybe some other ways to help us dig into this idea of how these bales function in our lives. Um, where does your mind drift to when you daydream, right? When you're driving down the highway, right? Your mind just kind of, where does it go to? What do you think about? Um, what are you orienting your life around? What is your life orbit around? Uh, if, if you're a millennial like me or not, maybe you've adopted this practice, you tend to scroll on your phone before you go to bed. It's probably all of you, um, but my generation is more culpable. Uh, and so we, we kind of scroll through, scroll through, and then we realize we're like we probably should go to bed, and we put the phone down, and then in the 20 minutes between when the phone is down in our sort of consciousness comes back as opposed to just like diluting ourselves with the pixels. Um, what is, what comes in our brain then? What do we think about in that moment? In other words, what are we trying to distract ourselves from while we scroll? That might be a good indication of where our bales are. Where do you run to as a balm when things aren't going right? Another question I love to ask is, is how do you self-medicate, right? What is maybe that thing that you're really good at or you're really strong with a, a you know, personality, a talent, or a gift in some way, when one aspect of your life seemingly falls through, or maybe a friend or a colleague or something gets a raise or, or does something better to make you feel insecure, what do you run to to say, oh, well, at least I have fill in the blank. That might be a bail. The wise church and the wise individual, the wise Christian, intent on both robust doctrine and evident informed human love does well to interpret not only the scriptures, as we have been doing here, but also culture and the human heart. Because there are bales everywhere and they need to be discerned. In what ways do we exercise the root of idolatry and make God in our own image, just like our culture tells us to do? Because ultimately we are allured by many other doctrines. Everything in this sense is preaching. In the 21st century, every pixel has a promise, every iPhone has an idol. That's the reality of life that we live in. Uh, I, I teach down the road at uh, Calvary Christian Academy, and just this year I've started a new class with my students called Christ and Culture. 
And essentially what it boils down to is we, we ask ourselves how our phones change everyday life and, and how we are allured into idolatry um, in a lot of ways through what we experience on our phones. And the very first class, I have all my students pull out their phones. Their phones are their textbook in my class. Um, and they, they'll go to, I say, go to settings, general, pull up screen time. And I want you to tell me your statistics on screen time. How many hours a day are you on your phone? How many notifications do you get? What apps are your most popular? How many pickups do you have? 80% of my sophomore students spend between four and eight hours a day on their phone. 80%. One girl confessed <laughs> that she spent 12 hours a day on her phone. 12 hours a day. Now, I don't know how she sleeps. It must be like five hours. And so they'll say, oh, so Mr. Most, our iPhones are our idols. I say, no, your iPhone is where your idols live. Your iPhone is the, is the gift wrap, the shiny gift wrap that attracts you into worship of other gods. And so ultimately, we as the church need to discern our idols. We need to identify this idea of Jezebel inviting us into Baal worship, and we need to reorient our devotion to the only one worthy of such worship. And this is where deliverance comes in, our third point. So in the midst of this stern rebuke, and it is rather stern, um, there is still patience and forbearance, which is rather incredible. Um, Twice in verses 21 and 22, we hear these qualifications, I gave time to repent. Okay? Now, when we hear that, we have to hold that intention with verse 18. Again, different eras of church history will emphasize different aspects about who God is. Right? So, yes, of course, God is love. That is his first and foremost, most common and reflexive trait, and we champion that, of course, as a church. But we need also to make room in our picture of who Christ is, we need to make room in our Christology for uh, Revelation 2.18, the words of the Son of God who has eyes like flame of fire and whose feet are burnished like bronze. We need to understand that, yes, Jesus is the lamb. He's the lamb that was slain. But in Revelation, he's also the lion. He's the conquering king. And the reason we need to keep that in mind is if we, if we think that, that Jesus is just some like jigglypuff Jesus, right? When he gives us the opportunity to repent, it will not be sweet because we think he's a pushover. We don't think he actually means what he says. But if Jesus is the conquering king with eyes like flame of fire and feet like burnished bronze, when we recognize in the light of his holiness how in trouble we are, when he gives us time to repent, it will be that much sweeter. So we need to hold those things in tension. Otherwise, the offer of repentance will not be as sweet, right? It's, I think of that C.S. Lewis quote in uh, Lion, Witch, in the Wardrobe. Uh, I'm forgetting the specifics, but someone asked, is Aslan safe? And the response is, no, he's not safe, but he's good, right? And that's kind of the same idea, I think, that's being pulled out here in Revelation 2. So twice in verses 21 and 22, we hear these qualifications. You can repent unless you repent. Meaning this, if we identify with the church of Thyatira, and we do, we should, there's a way out. It's the same clarion call of the Gospels. It's, it's what John the Baptist came on the, the scene screaming in the wilderness, right? It says, repent, repent and believe the Gospel. So here in Revelation 2, verses 21 and 22, 
is the grace and love of God shining forth in all of its beauty and resplendence because we understand that his eyes are like fire and his feet are like burnished brass. Despite our egregious sins and the egregious sins of the prophets of Jezebel, his followers are given opportunities to repent. And this is staggering because when we consider repentance, um, that's the qualification, right? The, the one qualification to the gospel is repentance. You, you, you might always say that, um, you, know, you know, God's love is, is, is free and, and unqualified and there are no prerequisites. Um, in one sense, that's true, but in another sense, it's not because repentance is the prerequisite. But we have to understand what repentance is before we pursue that. Repentance, down to its core, is essentially saying, I'm wrong, I screwed up, I need help, I can't do it on my own. And as that, that sounds simultaneously very easy, but I think we all know deep down it's very difficult. And the reason why it's very difficult is uh, nobody in our culture does that. <laughs> When's the last time you watched the news and you know, a floating head said, yeah, I really screwed up, I'm wrong, I'm sorry. The other side of the argument was right, please forgive me. No one says that, ever. So in this sense, even in the 21st century, in light of Revelation 2, repentance is still, 2,000 years later, um, perhaps the most radical thing one can do. Consider this quote. The deepest distinction among human beings is not between the bad and the good, but between those who know they are bad, repentance, and those who do not, unrepentant. The strange key to participation in the joys of God's kingdom is not qualifying ourselves for it, but frankly acknowledging our disqualification. This is repentance. Nearly every aspect of our life demands a resume, whether formal or informal. So if it's a job, you better have something down. You better have something to prove you're worth it. But we also have these weird unspoken social contracts that in some way also amount to a resume. Repentance says your resume is admitting you don't have a resume. <laughs> Your qualification is your disqualification. That is repentance. And so what happens then to the repentant? There's a, a beautiful promise in verse 28. Here's what verse 28 says. And I will give him the morning star. Okay, the morning star. What is that? That's, that's kind of weird. If, if you fast forward in Revelation, I'm sure you guys will get there. In verse 22, 16, here's what it says. I, Jesus, have sent my angel to testify to you about these things for the churches. I am the root of the descendant of David, the bright morning star. There's remarkable significance here. It means that the message of repentance would be a radical departure from anything anyone in the ancient Near East would have ever been accustomed to. It's actually, in this sense, early on, Christianity was considered the unreligion because it was so different from any other religion any world civilization had constructed up to that point. Consider this. The ancient Greeks told us to be moderate by knowing our inclinations. The Romans told us to be strong by ordering our lives. Buddhism tells us to be disillusioned by annihilating our consciousness. Hinduism tells us to be absorbed by merging our souls. Islam tells us to be submissive by subjecting our wills. Agnosticism tells us to be at peace by ignoring our doubts. Moralism tells us to be good by discharging our obligations. Only Jesus tells us to be free by acknowledging our failure. Repentance, verse 21 and 22. 
Christianity is the unreligion because it's because it is the one faith under whose founder tells us to bring not our doing, but our need. Not our qualification, but our disqualification. Okay, so back to the original question. Not like Ephesus, doctrine and duty. Not like Ephesus. Not like Thyatira. But how do we get this beautiful blend of doctrine and duty? Jonathan Edwards, in his book, The Nature of True Virtue, argued that human beings would only be drawn out of themselves, repentance, turning away from yourself, human beings would only be drawn out of themselves into unselfish acts of service to others when they see God as supremely beautiful. In other words, the doctrine of Christ's beauty will draw us out into the delight of our duty. Think of it this way. Doctrine without duty is like a moving walkway. You know, at the airport, we are moving, but us in and of ourselves are motionless, lifeless, and ineffective. Duty without doctrine is like a treadmill. We're running really fast, we're super active, but we're not really getting anywhere. Doctrine and duty together is like a six-year-old on an escalator ascending to the place they're always destined to go. Even if they fall back, they are still moving in the direction that they are destined to be. In the mid-1800s, excuse me, there was a, a, a doctor in Vienna. His name was Ignaz Semmelweis. I think I'm pronouncing that right. I'm not real confident in my 1800 pronunciations. Um, he was an OB at Vienna General Hospital, and there was a, a curious reality to his practice early on. The mortality rate among women in his maternity ward and his hospital was 1 in 10, which is awful. It was eventually known as childbed fever. The symptoms included inflammation and fever and swelling and, and shortness of breath. We're all familiar with symptoms these days. And they, all they tried all sorts of things around the hospital to alleviate some of these issues. Upon reviewing all the factors, they realized that there was a second section of the maternity ward adjacent to Semmelweis, and its mortality rate was 1 in 50. So still not great, but better than 1 in 10. So just by pure coincidence, by chance, Dr. Semmelweis took a four-month leave to visit another hospital. And upon his return, he discovered that the death rate had fallen significantly. This would have been jarring for any doctor. He dug into possible reasons why this would happen, and his inquiry led him to think about the possible significance of the research done by his doctors and himself on cadavers. Vienna was a research and teaching hospital. Many of the doctors split time between cadavers and live patients. And so Semmelweis discovered that the only significant difference was that he himself spent far more time than other doctors doing research on cadavers, thereby transferring bacteria. Remember, this is 1800s. We don't have advanced COVID research like we have today. Transferring bacteria and germs from the cadavers to the women in his maternity ward. And this theory became the precursor to the germ theory. And so he immediately instituted a policy requiring physicians to wash their hands thoroughly in a chlorine and lime solution before examining any patient. Immediately, the death rate fell to 1 in 100. Now, throughout that whole time, he was still a doctor. He was doing doctorly things. 
but there was a truth and reality that he was desperately missing. He was very ineffective, and it wasn't until he discovered that truth and reality until his practice took off and was completely redefined, the vertical and the horizontal. Then his treatment was effective. Likewise, the Church of Thyatira and the larger Church of Christ must orient our beliefs around the true, resplendent, glorious doctrines of Christ. So, then what is that truth? What is that truth? Again, verse 28. He himself is the morning star. You, if you are in Christ, if you are repentant, as we talked about, you can call God Father. Now, joke among preachers is as soon as, you know, a new preacher has a kid, you can expect the illustration of the father and son. So here it is. My son is two months old. This is the first time I've preached. Since then, you're getting it. Um, my son's name is August. And uh, just this morning, 5 a.m., I just got to hold him. That's it. That's it. And he was laying on my chest right here because he woke up and I let his mom sleep and uh, wasn't doing anything, right? And then he eventually crapped his pants, right? <laughs> like all babies do. But there was nothing. As I just laid on my couch, like everyone always says it, right? Oh, just wait till you become a dad. Just wait until you become a dad. It's unlike anything else. And, you know, four months ago, I was like, yeah, okay. Because I had no category for it, right? And then once you have the category for it, He's doing nothing. He's actually making my life worse. I sleep less. I clean more poopy diapers. I have less time. I like, he makes my life worse in a lot of ways. But there's nothing he could do to make me love him any less. And if that is the picture that God gives us as Father, and my imperfect love for August is fractionally representative of God's perfect love for us, that is the truth that we must orient our lives around. That is the truth that transforms. Um, namely, that we have the morning star. We have Christ. And because we are repentant, because we are in him, because his record is transferred to us, the exchange church, that's what it's all about. God looks at us perfectly as sons and daughters. And so perhaps the best way to conclude would be where our passage concludes in verse 29. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. Let's pray. Lord, we are just grateful. Um, we're grateful that you love us. We're grateful that uh, we have the morning star in Christ. And Lord, honestly, this causes us to repent. This causes us to acknowledge the ways that we are too similar to the church of Thyatira. And God, we ask um, for repentance. Uh, we ask for mercy and for grace, Lord. And, and through that mercy and grace of the cross of Jesus Christ, we ask then, God, that, that we would feel it, not just um, in a doctrine way, but in a duty way as well. Both of them um, synthesize, Lord, so our lives would be changed with power that can only come from above because, God, we can't generate this ourselves. So, Lord, we just commit this to you. We ask that you change us in the name of your Son. Amen.